At the Sports History Network, we're proud to introduce you to a new sponsor for our podcasts. It's Homefield Apparel, your premium collegiate apparel brand right out of Indianapolis. They've got incredibly comfortable t-shirts, plus they're officially licensed with vintage college designs. They have over 150 plus colleges available now and always adding more. Homefield digs through the archives and history of your school to find unique logos, mascots, and moments to make thoughtful designs for your school. When you shop today, new customers can get a 15% discount off their first purchase using the promo code SPORTSHISTORY at checkout. You can learn more at homefieldapparel.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome to Game Film, the sports movie review podcast, with your hosts, Aaron Harris and Oz Davis. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Game Film. I'm Aaron Harris, joined by always as uh, by Oz Davis. And today we are going to be talking about auto racing films. And I think you would agree with me on this one, Oz, that this is probably the strongest slate of movies that we've decided to review for an episode thus far, yeah? Yeah, this is probably three for three. Uh, I think that in general, uh, despite Le Mans, which is actually a really great uh, movie from the 70s. But I think that Formula One is a sport where movie making has actually caught up to the sport finally. I think that now is a potential golden age for doing racing films. I think now we have the filming, and the editing techniques, the special effects. Uh, we can blow stuff up a lot more frequently uh, in the case of these like 60s and 70s racing movies especially you need that um things like that so i think that this is really uh, a sport whose time has come in that respect i don't well i guess the popularity of nascar is still rising and i know that formula one is still very popular in europe so maybe in that respect too that the actual sport itself is enjoying sort of prime time um in terms of worldwide audiences and popularity yeah it's interesting to think about evolution of racing movies and i think especially the role that effects play into it because obviously the earliest film we're going to talk about is from 1971 and i thought that was as invigorating as any of the racing across any of the films that we watched Uh, and then the most recent one came about i believe it was what 2019 yes yeah, yeah. Ford versus Ferrari is a 2019 film. Yeah, and it is interesting. I mean, both you have advantages, obviously, to using either approach, but I, I definitely the more purists, I think, will prefer the you know human stunt work as opposed to the effects. But I think it does kind of benefit some certain uh, cinematography choices too, as you could see in Rush specifically. Well, the the trickery um, is different, right? The the movie magic is different in both of these films, right? Because in, in Le Mans, you had to do the French connection thing, right? Where you just edit it super quick 
and give the illusion of things happening really fast, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they also did the thing, which you wouldn't see in too many movies now. Glad they really employed this extensively. It's Gladiator 2000. Uh, slow motion, slow motion effects, right? You also do that. And that also can be effective as a special effect because then you get the details. You get to see the little pieces fly off the car or crumple. And then you really like tense up as you see the thing slowly coming into the rail or whatever. And then bam. Um, so that's almost as effective uh, in a lot of ways. However, again, one of the advantages of the modern day filmmaking is cameras can move really quickly now, along with the vehicles, right? So you don't have to fake that. Right? You don't have to do so much cutting. However, I should also point out that Ford and Ferrari did win Oscars for both film editing and sound editing. So the French connection effect is still there. But on top of that, we also get that extra technology, the extra advancements uh, of filmmaking. Yeah, I think for an editor that wants to do sports movie, this is probably the most mm. prime genre to work in. I, I guess it may be in some respects, boxing may have a little bit to do with it, but I think that's so heavily reliant on the actors too, whereas... You, you can not have to focus too much on the actual acting or the actors themselves as you do on the race. So I do think there is a lot of opportunity there. Um, and, and think about this, the, the bread and butter of American action films is what? The car chase. Oh, yeah. Right? Now, the car chase is not quite as popular in films as it used to be because everybody's doing superhero films. But, I mean, what are these films but just a long-ass car chase? You know, yeah. I mean, it's not quite on the level of latest Mad Max film, but, you know, it's close. It's close. Yeah, and I've also found, too, I mean, maybe this is a little bit of a side riff, but, like, car chase, the best car chases I've found are ones that aren't supplemented with music. Because mm. for, for me, what I really enjoyed about, like, the French Connection was listening to the rails or the, uh, the subway hit the rails and listen to the car screech and crash into the pillars whenever he loses control of the car. Or when you hear in a bullet, whenever he's chasing down the, um, right. in, in San Francisco, you hear the sound of the metal hitting the pavement and it just adds like that grittiness to it. You know, you're not trying to you know, keep people's attention with music. You're doing it just through the sound of the, the hunk of metal and the engines running. And I think this was the same too. You, know, you saw plenty of times in which you didn't feel the need to add music because it was just invigorating listening to the engine itself. Yeah, that was, the, that was one of the things I was thinking is that um, that sound in Formula One, you can still hear it today, but that sound of cars zipping past, mm-hmm. okay? is one of the most charismatic sounds in all sports. I would put that right up there with uh, the ball hitting the pins in bowling, right? It's that sound where it's like, yeah, this is a great sport. And the, the problem with these motor races is um, they're freaking loud, okay? They are if you go see them. However, it's not the sort, it's not like the discordant, loudness of traffic or you know that dude that needs a new carburetor and so he backfires every time he leaves the green light you know um it's not like that it's loud but it's smooth you know it's loud but it's but it's 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 a well-oiled machine 
like it's literally. Like, it's and like listening so it to doesn't vinyl. Doesn't sound bad, right? Yeah, or like who reads metal machine music, <laughs> right? But it's some, it's some, it doesn't grate, you know. And when they sit by that, yeah, that's so nice. That's so nice. So let's go dive into the first one, which is the earliest one, uh, Le Mans, by starring Stephen Queen from 1971. For 24 hours each year, men and machines are put to the supreme test of speed and stamina. There are 55 cars and 110 drivers, representing countries from all over the world. They will drive day and night through sun and rain. Beneath his racing suit, each driver must wear fireproof underwear, capable of withstanding 2,400 degrees Fahrenheit the temperature of burning gasoline for 15 seconds. Yellow flags and yellow lights along the circuit indicate the presence of an accident. Yellow means danger, no overtaking. And so, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most famous motor car race in the world, the 38th running of the Grand Prix of Endurance and Efficiency, the 24 hours of the long. is speed. The objective is winning. And the danger is dying. Le Mans, where hour by hour, lap after lap, a man-to-man competition of champions never stops. Do you think it will be like a Nürburgring? A race between you and Stahler? I hope not. Will this uh, be the same kind of race you had with Delaney at the Nürburgring? Well, uh, this is Le Mans. It's a different thing, you know. And what do you think of Stahler? Stahler? I think he's probably one of the best drivers in the world. Do you think that you and Delaney will end up having a close race here? Maybe. He's fast, I'm fast, so we're always together. Press is making a big thing about us. Yeah. But it's money. That's American. Michael? Careful. Now, don't be a pain in the ass, Harry. Le Mans. At 200 miles an hour, the pressure of winning and losing is tough enough. Explaining it to someone else makes it even tougher. This isn't just a thousand to one shot. This is a professional blood sport. And it can happen to you. Then it can happen to you again. What is so important about driving faster than anyone else? A lot of people go through life doing things badly. Racing's important to men who do it well. When you're racing, it's life. Anything that happens before or after, it's just waiting. La Mans. The men. The machines. The motion picture. 
Steve McQueen stars in it. No one else could. So this was definitely the most unconventional of the three movies that we watched. And it's certainly one of the more unconventional that I remember watching because it's done in a documentary style. Um, not, not in the sense of like, this is Spinal Tap or The Office where it's like a mockumentary with fake interviews and stuff. This is a fictional movie, but it's done in such a documentary style where you have no narration. It's right super long periods without any dialogue whatsoever uh and you're almost just there capturing the events as they unfold and you have snippets of a plot i guess but it really is irrelevant because about a half hour into the movie i asked myself why didn't the guy just make a documentary about the actual le mans race and i really think this was him trying to kind of live out his passion or maybe even his dream of being a race car driver and I remember I, I had watched that behind the scenes um, documentary that was made about it, uh, the man in Le Mans. And right. it's one of those behind the scenes disaster stories of a production where whatever can go wrong does go wrong. You know, you had a guy that lost his leg shooting this movie. People were fired halfway through the film, people walking off set. Uh, McQueen apparently never raced again after doing this movie. Um, but it, this really did give me a lot of, this wasn't the best movie of the bunch, but for me, it left the most impression because like McQueen, as much of a star as he was, he didn't detract from the movie. Like this was about Le Mans. It wasn't about the guy who raced in Le Mans. And I really did enjoy that about the movie. And it's certainly a film that I want to go back and revisit at a later time, because as I mentioned, the format is so unique. And I don't think that I can compare it to anything else that I've seen, except maybe actual documentaries, which again, this isn't, but it gives you that authentic feel which is what a lot of people love about it and it's kind of gained that cult following yeah it was like the documentary that they did for 30 for 30 when i just loved to death it's one of my favorite documentaries about the day that uh, oj uh fled prison mm -hmm. and uh, all the other things that were happening in sports on that day it's a documentary and i, I have this in my notes uh you want to call it a pastiche film you know, like one of these Robert Altman, you know, 400 people in a movie. But it's a lot more like a documentary about narration. That's exactly what it looks like. Um, for me, okay, my, my first take on this is, look, this film just doesn't get made in any other decade no. other than the 70s. This is some pure post-Kubrick, like, Arthur-led filmmaking. Um, you talked about how there's hardly any dialogue. The first proper dialogue is 38 minutes in, and it's just small talk, okay? Mm -hmm. um, unlike in some bits of Ford versus Ferrari, when these folks are sort of muttering stuff or yelling stuff in foreign languages, you don't get the subtitles, okay? Right. You don't understand, because guess what? Our main characters don't understand. So too bad, uh, you don't get that, right? Um, no proper dialogue in this. Now, um, for me, I guess the only things that really detracted from the movie are, you know, the tropes. Um, and, and I realized probably some of these that this movie created. But, you know, this is where the sort of Hollywood melodrama has to leak in. I mean, they were this close to doing a pure sports movie, right? But then you have to throw in stuff like, oh, you know, the danger of the rain. 
you know, which is never real. I mean, it doesn't really pay off, to be honest. It's not like it, not like it does in, in, in uh, Rush, not even close. Um, you have the racer trying to quit, you know, trying to retire. You have the distressed wives, you know, and, and worst of all, you know, the, the sports movie thing, you have a 24 hour race, which is I calculated it's about 500 laps around, you know, a three, a seven mile track, whatever. And it comes down to the last lap. Come mm. on, come on, enough with that. I'm sorry, that just doesn't happen. Yeah, I mean, maybe it happens once or twice, but it doesn't happen that often. Um, and, you know, the, the, the obligatory love story, uh, not even a love story, just this character of Lisa the Widow made no sense. Yeah, it was. This is the kind of character that shows up whenever it's convenient for the plot. You know, it's just like what? I mean, she's the widow of a driver who gets killed in a race, and six months later, she's just hanging out there at the track. You know, associating with other teams and stuff. You know, it's like what? You know, I'm sorry, that makes no sense. Yeah, it certainly felt like she was there just for filler. And she's a, I don't know the name of the actress. She's a German woman. I can't remember her name, but she was gorgeous, but she didn't really contribute anything to the plot. I thought Um, she ought to be gorgeous. She's window dressing. Yeah, of course. (laughs) I mean, but, but one thing that I really did enjoy too, is like you were talking about how this is kind of like a post Kubrick movie. And I think in in some regards too, this is kind of like, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of a French director named Jean-Pierre Melville, who did La Samurai. Yeah, you know, sure. the thing that I love about his movies is like the cinema of process where you you show mm-hmm. the standard order of operations of the climax of the rising action from beginning to end. You know, if you look right. at French movies like Pickpocket or uh, some of Melville's movies like Le Cercle Rouge or Rafifi, where they have these long high sequences that have no dialogue or no music whatsoever. And this is what kind of gave me that sort of sensation, you know, right. this ritualistic event. I felt like I was watching a ritual, like a ceremony and less so a movie. And that was what was really cool about it. And to the point that you made earlier about the editing, um, the flashbacks that they used in slow motion, I think had that sort of like Sam Peckinpah feel where they were really, yes. where they showed the action. And I thought that was cool. You don't, you don't see that kind of quick editing anymore where it's like you have a close up shot than the slow motion editing and you kind of put it in fragments back and forth. I thought that was great. I mean, whenever you reduce the volume to where you hear nothing except a crash and the sound of like hearts beating, that to me is how you get immersed, especially in a movie like this, that's not bogged down by narrative where you forget your place in the movie. This is just you witnessing events unfold and you get right. enthralled in it. Yeah, the, the Melville is a good call. Um, it struck me too, again, like this is a total kind of, se- in America anyway, it's a 70s thing where you show the pieces, right? And it's almost like geometric forms, right? You show them like changing a wheel or something, changing a tire or, okay, the thing opens on a car crash, right? So you show the guy from the windshield, right? Then you cut to like the, the whites on the track, right? And then you're just showing a piece of the car. <laughs> and it was just like, that's great. It's a, it's like pieces of a puzzle, yeah. You know, but it's also that capturing of geometric space, which European filmmakers have loved to do since you know what the Russians in the twenties. You know, they just love to do that sort of let's capture the minutia of of this you know uh, factory wheel, or whatever. Um, so, yeah, really, just really 
gorgeous filmmaking, interesting uh, way to tell a story. Again, mostly dialogue free. Uh, and you don't even need a monolith. Yeah, and it's actually one of the movies where sometimes whenever I watch a movie, I'll go in and I'll kind of think like, what can I compare it to? Or actually, I take that back. It's not like if I can compare it to, but I try to find movies that are made in a similar way. And there's there's a very few movies in which I've actually done, like, can you identify a movie or I guess in some cases, like a, a song that's done in this exact way. And this was one of those for me where I went and I actually looked, can you can you find a movie? And I typed in movies like made like Le Mans. And I really didn't find well, anything. I thought, I thought in a lot of ways it was similar to Two Minute Warning. Which we did on this show. Yeah, about you know, because four, again, yeah. You, you just kind of have this, it's not a roving camera so much, it's a roving plot. You know, yeah. we're just following these characters and it's all taking place as part of this grander narrative. In that case, it's an event at the fake Super Bowl. Yeah. Um, in this case, you know, it's the race. You yeah. know, so for me, I, I thought there was a lot of comparisons there. And, and I thought of 2001 quite a lot. Just yeah. in the respect that, you know, it's showing the difficulty of doing something that used to be simple, in this case, driving. Right. In the case of 2001, it's like walking in space, <laughs> you know, or, or again, like the fact that I think um, 2001 starts with 23 minutes of no dial, mm. right? Because it's just apes kicking along on the savannah, right? But, um, and, and like in this one, you know, 38 minutes without proper dialogue. Uh, Kubrick, so often, doesn't really depend on sound too much in that film because it's in space and he's the only person that remembers that there is no noise in space. But uh, kind of uh, on visuals, you know, very dependent on visuals in, in Kubrick's film, like this film as well. The small bits or the very, or the small bits made huge um, is a very common thing in 2001 as well. So I saw some similarities to other films. I mean, what? not like it's not like a sports film for sure. And I think that in the way that it tells a story, it is pretty unique. You'd have to go to La Jetée. But that, of course, is a completely different format as well. So. Well, I, I, I like the uh, Cooper comparison because I think what you're what you just described about that super expository type of filmmaking you have to be very active as a director and get multiple shots if you're going to do something like that i mean actually what was the um uh the olympic movie that um that we reviewed the documentary the lenny reifenstahl yeah i mean that 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 has a similar um way about it too where you're kind of roving the camera around and showing a lot of movement or a lot of variety of shots because sometimes you can get a guy like nicholas wending riffin that will just keep a static shot and not really move much and you you kind of wonder what are you doing did you leave and take a break and come back <laughs> you know so i think if you're gonna yeah but like you're a just a modern filmmaker the static shot is dead right i mean nobody uses nobody can keep the camera still for more than two seconds these days i yeah, think the last guy to do it was jim jarmusch and night on earth that's like 1990 yeah, but Reffin takes it to a whole new extreme. Like whenever he was talking, <laughs> I mean, did you did you see um, what was the Amazon show? Too old to die young. No, I haven't seen. It's that, like no. a mini. It's like a mini series where each episode is like an hour and a half about like a LAPD detective uh, who also moonlights as a hitman. But they, it's like every every scene. There's only like four scenes in an entire episode, and they're all just static. Wow. 
I mean, I'm exaggerating in that one, but I mean, like still, it's like there's very few scenes to fill up like an hour and a half show where they're all just kind of sitting there staring at each other and really nothing transpires. You know, it's like ha- have a little more variety in your camera work if you're going to do something like that. Well, it sounds to me like the, uh, the showrunner wanted to do theater. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah it's not, it sounds like a play. Yeah, but theater relies on dialogue, you know, it's like <laughs> you got to do something. Until you're Sam Beckett. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, so another movie that took place at Le Mans was 2019's Ford versus Ferrari. How long have we known each other, Ken? I ever break a promise to you? I will put you in the driver's seat at Le Mans. You just shut your mouth and let me do my thing. All right. Morning, Shelby. Morning, Molly. Up yours. I'll go to hell. And that's it, folks. Ferrari wins the 24 Hours of Le Mans for the fifth consecutive year. Mr. Ford, Ferrari has a message for you, sir. What did he say? He said Ford makes ugly little cars in ugly factories. And, uh, God, you fat, sir. We're gonna bury Ferrari at Le Mans. So the great Carol Shelby is gonna build a car to beat Ferrari with a Ford. Correct. And how long did you tell them you needed? Two or three hundred years? Ninety days. (laughs) Ford hates guys like us because we're different. We heard he's difficult. Ken? No, no, Ken's a puppy dog. It's awful. If there's a problem, the computer will find it. Get some scotch tape and a ball of wool. What are they doing? Making your car faster. Oh, that's Ken Miles is not a Ford man. We're on the verge of something. And now you tell me that I can't have the best man in the world behind the wheel? Give me one reason why I don't fire everyone starting with you. Well, sir, we're lighter, we're faster. And that don't work, we're nastier. Go ahead, Carol. Go to war. You got a plan. It's high risk. I thought the whole point was to win the damned race. If this were a beauty pageant, we just lost. Looks hard, everything. Now, this is obviously the most recent film on our list. And saying is, I don't think you and I really watched a lot of contemporary films or enjoy a lot of contemporary films, I should say. What were your initial thoughts when you saw this movie? And did you have any other opinions rewatching it for this episode? I actually saw it in advance of the 2020 Academy Awards. Mm. Um, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of modern films, but I do try and get the better stuff um, under my belt. Uh, And it is well worth just running through the Oscar-nominated films every year. I mean, what other chance are you going to get to see three billboards? 
which was a tremendous film, or Get Out, which blew by a lot of white folks, you know, until it got that Oscar nomination. And these are quality, great films. Now, Ford versus Ferrari, uh, you know, it was on my list. I had it up there. You know, I had heard what it was about, but I had, you know, no real clue. I basically knew it was, you know, a racing film with Matt Damon and Christian Bale in it, but not much more than that. Uh, but I came away the first time, this is the third time I think I watched it. And I came away that first time, yeah, just thinking, yeah, this is a good solid movie. You can see why this film was nominated for the best, best picture Oscar, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's got that epic scope that Hollywood loves. It's got that USA against the world kind of theme. It's got some really great dialogue. And it's starring Academy Darlings, Matt David and Christian Bale, uh, both playing against type, which I would point out. Now, just because I called them Academy Darlings doesn't mean I don't think they did a great job because both of these guys killed it in this film, playing characters that they don't necessarily play. I mean, Matt Damon was this sort of overconfident, brash Southern guy, really a dope character. When, when, he, when he gives it to uh, Henry Ford, is one of the best scenes in the movie. And, you know, Christian Bale is playing basically the exact opposite of his Rain Man-esque character in The Big Short, which is an excellent, excellent movie. But, you know, in that movie, he's kind of playing this this sort of, uh, you know, um, autistic, almost autistic kind of guy, this idiot savant kind of guy with a bad haircut. And in this movie, he's just kicking ass. He's just telling everybody exactly what thinks you know he has great sense of humor in this film and while this film has some dumbing down to it you know some like let's make it convenient to the plot like for example look there's no way in 1966 an american network is going to give 24 hours of time to a race in europe i'm sorry that's just not going to happen. You're going to get the 90-minute Wide World of Sports version two weeks after the fact, okay? So, for example. But, you know, you just love the plot machinations on top of the editing, on top of the racing itself, which looks great. But you just love, I mean, there's a couple of, of, of twists and turns, I, I might say, uh, in this film that you're really not expecting. Like when, like the scene I just talked about, when, when Henry Ford wants to know why, he shouldn't fire Shelby, Matt Damon's character. Um, tremendous scene. You won't know what hits you. Great scene. And it's all just dialogue. Or, or when Shelby is trying to talk Miles, the Christian Bale character, into rejoining the team. Because it's a thing, you know, where Christian Bale, the Christian Bale character quits and they has to go to his house and talk back into it. And there's this bit that's totally unexpected. It goes completely against like everything else you get in sports movies, you know, where it's like, come on, man, you know, I put my butt on the line for you. You got to get back with us. <laughs> and it's just, you know, the typical sports movie cliches. And then it just goes in a different direction. That's really funny and really true to the characters. Um, so, you know, great looking movie, great dialogue, excellent acting, really exciting. You know, again, Oscar oscar winning for editing this is a good solid movie. good solid 
Yeah, this is actually a movie where I didn't think there was really a bad performance. I mean, everybody oh, really no, not kind of everybody really went not. above and beyond their roles and did it exceptionally well. I think the guy that played Henry Ford did exceptionally well too. I mean, yeah. the scene, the scene whenever they're um uh what is it? Whenever he asked Ayakoka to tell him what the uh what Ferrari said. And he said, he said, you're not Henry Ford, you're Henry Ford II. And you get to see his face in that 15 seconds go from a little yeah. smile to such a subtle, sullen face. Yeah. And then that, that would, to me, was a really a good acting. And then the scene, whenever he's in the car with Shelby, uh, Matt Damon's character, and he starts weeping, just said how beautiful the experience was of driving in that yeah. car and how he wished his father. So I thought he did an exceptional job. And something I really enjoyed about this movie was, this is a, a film, I think, kind of, went along the theme of man versus machine in a way mm. because i think the thing about racing is the the driver controls so much because the car something can go wrong with the car or a car just isn't capable of doing something right and i think it really leaned heavily on this where you definitely need a great driver but the car you need is also just as important you know and i think it was kind of the a good way to show the dynamic between man and machine and also how one can work against the other in a race like this so that one mm. i thought that was interesting to explore well not so much in the endurance races um i guess nowadays probably in the endurance races too because to me that's more about man against himself but for anyone who's skeptical about whether formula one racing especially is a sport um just watch a race nowadays where they have the camera right behind the driver. The whole time these dudes are fighting the wheel. The whole time. I mean, when you say man versus machine, when you're going at like 250 around turns, you're fighting that fucker. <laughs> you are, you know, like working out. And then these guys, you see these guys, they get out of the car and they're all torso. Yeah. They're all torso. Yeah, they got right. like these little these little, you know, all muscle legs, but like really slim, you know, and on top, they're just huge. They look like Jose Kinsenko up top, you know, it's just like, so, so yeah, there's a lot of that element in here, but these movies really all end up, I mean, they are sports movies, right? So they really do end up being about what it takes to win right? What it takes for that guy to win. There's a lot of this in here. I mean, I mean, Shelby has to keep coming back to this. That is all about the driver. It's all about the driver. This isn't easy. You can get a pretty boy to do this, da, 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 da. but you need the special athlete. You need the special athlete. And that's really uh, what the next movie is about. And I think to some extent, that's what the first movie is about. Although I think in, in Le Mans, I think it's a lot more about you need the weird kind of person to do this. <laughs> you know, you need the person that's a bit off kilter. Yeah, well, well I'm, this is actually a good segue into the next movie then because in the next movie we're going to be talking about is Rush from 2013. death the more alive you feel you're james aren't you yes 
Who's that? It's Nicky Lauda. He's just been signed by Ferrari. He's a nobody. Look at the way he's driving like an old man. Right now, with zero incentive, why would I drive fast? Because I'm asking you to. Incredible battle between these two great drivers. Next time I'll have you. No chance. You're just a party guy. That's why everybody likes you. Yes, I know. I'm terrible. No, you're not terrible. You're just who you are at this point in your life. To be a champion, it takes more than just being quick. You have to really believe it. I've been waiting for this my whole life. I can beat this guy, trust me. He's consistent, dependable. Will he put his life on the line the day that really matters? Welcome to the racing grudge match of the decade. World champion Nicky Lauda, trapped in a searing inferno of 800 plus degrees. Talk to me, James. Don't go to men who are willing to kill themselves driving in circles looking for normality. And what did your wife say when she saw your face? She said, you don't need a face to drive, you just need the right foot. I feel responsible for what happened. Watching you win those races while I was fighting for my life, you were equally responsible for getting me back in the car. Yeah. 42 days after his near-fatal accident, Nicky Lauda will race here today. Powerful than the fear of death is the will to win. directed by Ron Howard. And this to me was kind of a, a strange movie in and of itself too, because this is a movie that moves at a really rapid pace in the first hour or so. Right. I mean, I, I don't feel like I really got to know either of the characters that well until um, James Hunt, who's played by Chris Hemsworth. He basically indulges in alcohol whenever he feels like he can't, find a car or he can't beat his competitor in a race uh nikki um nikki laud and it really begins to pick up i guess around that point when you start seeing how both of them are, are kind of two sides of the same coin which is something you'll see a lot in sports movies or i guess in any film in which you have a protagonist and an antagonist or i guess for lack of a, just two competing forces but mm -hmm. I do think it does show an interesting dynamic between the two because you have one guy in James Hunt who he enjoys like the playboy lifestyle. Right. And, but he doesn't think there's any problem in risking your life and dying to win a race. Whereas the other guy is super disciplined, has tunnel vision, but he's not going to allow himself to put his life in jeopardy. Right. You would think that the guy who is just so meticulous to the point where he can't see anything else around him would be willing to die. And the guy who's so concerned about life outside of racing would be the one to say, no, that's a little too eccentric. That's too extreme. So it almost shows like a, an internal contradiction that they in some ways have their own code, but they break rules whenever they're up against each other, if that makes <laughs> sense. Yeah, but the Hemsworth character had a death wish too, right? It's like being a knight, <laughs> right? It's like what? I mean, it's like being knights. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Like he says at the end, right? Yeah. He has this hero complex. Although, although, you know, those post credit scenes just blow that right away. Because right, he yeah. was like a year after this. He's like, well, I got enough money and uh, I'm enjoying being single and uh, I can do TV. You know, I'm Thor. You know, I'm people's sexiest man alive. You know, I can do yeah. TV. You know? <laughs> and and so so that that kind of got blown away at the end. But OK, so for me, I mean, looking at these guys as two sides of the same coin is a pretty good way to consider this film. But for me, this this film was an example of why my least five favorite words in movies are based on a true story. OK, OK, we know. We know that this is based on a true story. But what worries me is that people see this movie and then they're going to go and they're going to search for the minutia on how they got the Nikki Lauda character wrong. And you know what? I don't care. This character, this Nikki Lauda character is one of my all-time favorites in any sports movie. Okay, I love this guy. I mean, this, he he's... I'm not even sure if he's supposed to be a proper human being. Because to me, it's like this unfiltered honesty and this like obsessive attitude to racing. I think it's about being, you know, it, it's he's like a symbol of the goat mentality, right? He's got the killer instinct of Jordan. He's got the fixation of tom brady he's got the skills of bo jackson and you know he, he he's he's just a sociopath he's he's just obsessed with being the best and i just love this and 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 to me what's awesome about the directing in this movie by ron howard who i can talk about in a minute because i think this is key to this movie and peter morgan's screenplay uh, now, Peter Morgan also wrote The Damned United, which is a soccer movie, which I, I keep threatening to make Aaron watch for this for this show. It's awesome. Um, but Lauda, in the end, becomes a sympathetic character, right? And, and to me, that's what this movie is really about. You say you don't know what either of these characters is about for the first hour, right? But the thing is, these guys are only being appreciated by the media characters in the movie and by the fans after Lauda's near-fatal accident, right? After that happens, all of a sudden now the media is sympathetic to the racers who don't want to race on a rainy day, right? All of a sudden now they're laughing at his pragmatic attitude through life and racing. You know, and I mean, mm. why? Because they realize what they might miss if he were gone, right? The goat is right. what they would miss. They would miss this dude who wanted to be the best so bad. I mean, it's Ted Williams, right? Just, just that's all he thinks about is like winning at Formula One. Just, wow. I just, for me, Nikki Lauda sells this. And, and the other thing that's really great for me is this. The director in this film is Ron Howard. Now, Ron Howard is like, for me, he's like the ultimate mainstream director, right? This guy makes nice, serviceable serviceable movies, never dark, 
you know, the humor is never like, you know, gut, gut-wrenchingly funny. You know, it's light humor at best. You know, this is marketable for all audiences. But I think in this one, he really found a, 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 a story that he could tell straightforward that is intense and hardcore and fast, you know, anyway, <laughs> you know, he couldn't make this mainstream enough to be boring. And, 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 and I think he really understood this character of Nicky Bowden too. Well, to the original point about people going and trying to deconstruct the actual character of uh, Nicky Lauda, uh, I was reading a review that someone had written. I think it was for like film comment magazine. And they were saying it, it does indulge in the mythology, but these two characters or these two people have been raised to such mythological status that it is almost appropriate. Yeah. So in that point, yeah, it's like, you're kind of going from that point. And Oh, wait a sec, wait a sec, wait a sec. You mean that sports figures who were the best at what they did became almost mythological? Crazy. Oh, that right. never happened. And, and well, and to, but to that point too, I mean, to what you were talking about, I think one of the defining scenes and my favorite scene in the movie is when they're trying to drain his lungs after he gets. Oh God, really? Oh man. Yeah. I've seen whenever, this movie like four times in the last three. I've, I've skipped that scene or at least oh, no. like sort of, sort of averted by that. That's tough. To no, that's that, that to me with that to me was like the real turning point in the movie where it's like, now I really cared about like where this rivalry was going. And then whenever he's trying to put his helmet on, uh over the oh, the burnt Jesus. skin yeah it was uncomfortable to yeah, watch see? but dude that, that that's that's me highlighted what you were talking about that obsessive goat mentality right to not allow yourself to be defeated right now see okay now we can we can bring this whole thing full circle right we're talking about how you know people are going to nitpick this thing okay here's a great example actually what happened when he came back to that race or when he came back to the circuit in 1976, was he had to have a special helmet designed for him, okay? He wasn't wearing his old helmet. He had no need to do this, press it onto his head. But as we've seen in these other movies, sometimes when you have no dialogue and you're just showing, not telling, that's awesome. Right. For you, that was a turning point, and maybe nothing like that ever happened in real life but it doesn't matter, right? Because this movie has that through line, has that through line of absolute dedication to the craft. Yeah. Well, I think I think if, if he would have put his helmet on and stopped after like the first, the moment it touches his skin, it'd be like, screw this. I'm just going to get a specialty helmet. Like that's right. me, that, that to me also would have been like, you know, I think it would have gotten the same message across like, Hey, like this guy is going to find a way to get back in there. And I think it would have resonated with me the same, but the, the, the visual of the close up of his skin touching the interior of his helmet, what was skin crawling and you couldn't help but look away for me at least. Because I just wanted to say one other thing on this film. Um, it's also pretty historically important. This is the Sports History Network, so it should be pointed out that um, prior to this crash that we see in this movie where Elaud is baked alive uh, in his car, um, prior to this, basically Formula One racing is pretty much, as far as I can tell, the second most dangerous sport ever played, uh, right after gladiator fights. 
seriously, in terms of fatalities, okay, between 1952 and 1982, an average of one and a half drivers died every season of racing. Okay, that's a lot considering the field is pretty small. That's a high freaking mortality rate. A lot higher than, say, professional baseball, where one guy in history has died in a professional game. Um, but beginning after Lauda's crash, and again, like what I feel is this revelation that, holy hell, we could have lost this guy, you know, mm -hmm. for no good reason. Um, and the conclusion of the 1976 season, this is when Formula One really started making reforms. This is when they started putting committees together, started reshaping the sport. Um, Within about 10 years, they had uh, new emergency ways to get out of the car. They had sturdier cabins designed to protect the driver on impact. Like the rest of the car crumbles, but the, the cabin stays intact. Uh, mm. There's more fireproofing. There was helmet design changes because one of the things about Lauda is that his helmet like melted and then fell off. So he was breathing in all these toxic fumes, which is why he had to clean out his lungs like that. Um, so they improved the helmet design and they made a whole bunch of rules. Guess what? About racing in seriously inclement weather like this. Okay? Right, yeah. um, now you can even cancel races if it's really bad. But other than that, they have shorter versions. Um, they have things you can do before the race to protect the track, da 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 da, -da. But historically, uh, the crash of Ricky Lauda, and I guess, you know, ultimately sort of this rivalry which drove him to it, um, really one of the historical turning points in Formula One history. Yeah, I didn't know that uh, tidbit about it, so that was interesting. Um, oh, yeah. Interesting I, mean, with I mean, considering that in the last 20 seasons, four guys have died. Um, yeah, this sport has changed a lot. And in fact, if you want to start talking about goats in Formula One, and when you do, most of the names you hear are from nowadays, and that's because these guys now can have longer careers, <laughs> you know, than they used to be able to in Lauda's day, and it it's because, you know, of this event. Yeah, it seems to be the case in all sports, man. Well, yeah. The 70s, this has come up in many podcasts, the 70s in sport is a really bizarre time where for some reason, every sport suddenly becomes more violent, becomes more dangerous. I mean, even stuff like cricket, <laughs> you know, you have these test matches where these guys are throwing it at, their, at the other dude's head, mm. you know, and this is before they're wearing helmets, right? <laughs> With this hard wooden ball, they're throwing it at his head. Yeah. You know, it's just like, all these games, you watch baseball, for, totally violent football, you know, Deacon Jones is slapping guys upside the head. And, you know, there you have Formula One, where, like, you can expect two guys to die every day in the 70s. All right, kids, those are your uh, auto racing movies. I think all three are certainly worth checking out, as I'm sure you would agree as well. Uh, oh, absolutely. Can... I believe all three are available to rent through Amazon. I don't think any of these are available for free right now. Uh, Netflix. Well, Rush is available on Netflix. Um, oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Uh, Le Mans, you have to rent on Amazon and Ford versus Ferrari, I believe, is on Amazon. But you could probably get it from your local Redbox for a dollar. So, yeah, that's true. Go out, buy the movie, enjoy your popcorn, sit back in your seat and enjoy the show. Bye, everyone.
Pittsburgh Guardian newspaper circa 1924. But for Marla Delft, assistant editor, everything was about to change. For she was about to discover the awesome attractiveness of Row 1 brand retro sports paraphernalia items, thanks to Orville Mulligan, sports writer. And there it is. Wow, Orville, that's really the bee's knees. Isn't it just? A poster-sized replica of the actual 1909 World Series program cover. I can see that. But where did you get it? And where'd you get it framed? I ordered it from the Row 1 website, where over 6,000 items of sports memorabilia from the 1880s to the 1990s are available for reproduction, in multiple sizes and in several different materials, with over a dozen styles of frame to choose from for prints like this. Well, I'm sure Mr. Delft would love to put up more of these in the office. But I'm equally as sure they're beyond this newspaper's budget. <laughs> Not at all, my dear Marla. See for yourself. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com slash row one. Sportshistorynetwork.com slash row one. Oh my, these are good prices. Oh, and look at this stuff. Oklahoma, Nebraska football. College basketball art. Michael Jordan items. And so Retro it was that Marla Delft discovered the spondiferous magic of Row 1 sports memorabilia arts and prints. You can, too, by visiting sportshistorynetwork.com slash row1. That's R-O-W number one today for access to the full Row 1 catalog of gallery prints and gifts like t-shirts, long-sleeve shirts, telephone cases, coffee mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Act A for a 15% discount off all prints with coupon code SHN15 and 20% off all other items with coupon code SHN20 at checkout. And keep your dial locked to the Sports History Network for the exciting chronicles of the 1920 sports world in Orville Mulligan, sports writer, coming soon. Oh, yes,